The signs of the king's madness were there early on. He once asked his surgeon to get the Spanish to swap Gibraltar for Menorca. He would run up to farmers and give them advice on breeding better pigs. He also thought he could control the weather with his mind. At the end of his life, King George III was completely mad. But during his reign, he was arguably a good deal smarter than any British royal before or since. His book collection formed the basis of the British Library, and he was the patron of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. He may have lost America, but King George III won over all of Britain. Blind History, Season Five, and a character that I've been looking forward to getting to uh, for a long time. Anthony and I always talk about who we should have on the show in terms of these great historical figures. This guy kind of slides under the radar a little bit, but he was the longest lived and longest serving King of England before the Queen came along and before Victoria came along. He was the longest running reigning monarch in British history. And his name is George III. Most people know only a few things about him. They know that he lost America, which is unfair. We'll get to that. They know that he went mad, which is also unfair. We'll get to that. And that he had 15 children, which was true. And we'll get to that mm -hmm. as well. But what an interesting guy. Incredible. I didn't really know that he was such an interesting person. So George III was actually the grandson of George II. And they paid him no attention until his father, George III's father, died. And he became the next in line to the throne. And then suddenly George II took an interest in him, said to him, at an early age of about 14 or 15, right, we're going to set you up in your own lavish apartments in St. James's Palace. And his first decision as heir apparent was to say, no, I don't want to do that. I'll continue to live with my mother and I'll continue to have my family around me. As a, as a young boy, he didn't want any of the, the money and the luxury of, of having his own household. And his mother was quite strict, as I understand it. He was quite strict on himself. And he had a number of tutors through his, his childhood who obviously infused a very strong sense of morality and of principle and of discipline in George III because this guy grew up believing that certain things were right, certain things were wrong, and you couldn't persuade him otherwise. He wasn't going to be you know, bought over by the promise of pleasure or luxury. For the whole of his life, that one decision kind of set the tone for the way that he would live. And although his, his reign has been marked by, you know, the, the colonies, America in particular, rebelling against him, there was so much that went on that was so good. Uh, scientific development, the agricultural revolution, setting the scene for the industrial revolution, all of that took place under George III. He was the first English monarch of his dynasty, the Hanoverians, to speak English and to only live in England. He never left England. And he loved that. You know, he, 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 was, he was English through and through. Yeah. And he said that in his coronation, I believe. You know, That's right. I was born in England. I am English. Yeah. Where his grandfather and his father… They his, only spoke German. They were proper German. They could hardly speak English. And funny enough, his father, just on the side note, was his father loved cricket and he was quite good at cricket. Yes. And apparently that had some, maybe have something to do with his, de his early death. And that's why he never came to, to the throne. Although his, his father being George III's grandfather really didn't want him on the throne. Well, the Hanoverians always hated their heirs. They used to say terrible things about, all the way down to Victoria. They hated their heirs. Mm -hmm. So 
um, the father always hated their son and, and the, the, the feeling was mutual, going down every generation from George I all the way to Edward VII. And somehow, luckily, it broke at some point. But George III but was… But we don't know that, do we? <laughs> well, <laughs> With yeah. Elizabeth I mean, may, and the maybe, <laughs> maybe she still hates Charles. Who knows? Yeah. And they are still Hanoverians whether they like it or not. <laughs> so George was really interesting because he was very intelligent. He read prolifically. He wrote all the time. There is a collection of George III's letters in the Royal Archives in Windsor, which they actually did a documentary on about five or six years ago, which has just been released to the public. And it's incredible. Personal letters to his own family and his children and his friends, letters to politicians. He was very involved in the politics of the day. He knew everything that was going on. Mm. If there was an expedition to the Galapagos, he knew about it. If there was a new telescope being unveiled somewhere. He knew about it. He had astronomical clocks that had been given to him by, you know, his admirers and because he was patron of various science uh, foundations. He supported the arts, you know, Handel. He started the biggest collection of books in Britain. And the Museum of the Arts, was that that was started by him? Many, many different uh, foundations and, and museums that supported all kinds of endeavors were started under George III. And he would arrange his day around eclipses and planetary alignments. And he had the most sophisticated scientific equipment that any monarch has had. He's probably the cleverest person to have sat on the throne of England. And I mean no disrespect to mm. any of the And a very, very high work ethic. It's amazing what he got through. Incredible. And, but, and a lot was thrown at him. I mean, when he started, it was in the middle of the Seven-Year War, which is basically what we would call the First World War of sorts because mm. it was uh, where there were multiple – um, countries involved and he came into the middle of that right and in all intents purposes i think he handled it very well but then uh, when they had to do the peace treaty they felt that france should have been harder hit but his whole point was that you know if you do they're going to come back harder you know? well it's interesting you bring up france because throughout his reign there were a lot of comparisons with france and france didn't make the better decisions you know if you look back at that time the French Revolution happened during George III's mm. reign. And if England hadn't been managed better and it wasn't a constitutional democracy, it might have gone the same yeah. way as France had. And France was a bloodbath for mm. a long time. After that, Napoleon came along. Yeah. And most of Napoleon's real um, victories and his conquests were achieved under George III's reign, even though by then he'd gone crazy. And it was England who had to defeat mm. Napoleon. It was England who everyone looked to because the rest of Europe was in disarray. Yeah, so Wellington was part of uh, – under George III's era. Yeah. Look, um, he went through a series of prime ministers. I mean, among them are famously William Pitt, George Fox. There were a lot of very interesting politicians. And Butt. And, and Lord, Lord, Lord Butte. Is Don't it call not him Butt? But I, I know, I know <laughs> Sorry, what you mean. Yeah. But he was alleged to be having an affair with George's mother. So, because oh, they were very close to family. Very close. Yeah. Yeah. So th there's a lot that went on in this guy's reign because it was also such a long reign. And the interesting thing about him and his wife, Charlotte of Mecklenburg's Trelitz, who also never really learned to speak English properly. I mean, she would ask for things in German. She didn't know how to speak English very well. And when she did speak English, it was with a very bad accent. <laughs> And the children, some of them also end up speaking like this, yeah, because they were around their mother all the time. Like the daughters, the younger daughters yeah. were always around the mother and they were very coddled. The sons were maniacs. They, mm. they were like real playboy princes. They had 
women and fast chariots, and they spent money, and they had seaside homes, and you know they were really like mm. the first European aristocrats. And George was horrified because he was a tremendously moral man. Mm. He never cheated on Charlotte once, which was extraordinary. It was in that considering, era. I mean, all of his ancestors were correct jumping from one woman's bed to another. Mm. All of his children were jumping, his sons anyway, were jumping from one bed to another. And there was George holding the fort. Yeah. And he never, he didn't even know his wife. So they were, the first time he saw was at the time they were going to get married. He didn't and, know at all. I mean, it's, and he, he made a go of it. And he, 50 years, I think, or yeah. something. Look, crazy. unfortunately, towards the end, he was so deranged that he didn't even know she died, but he loved her to the end. Mm. And he, I think, was devoted to her in a way that we don't see often in. Yeah. You know, the marriages of, of very important, very rich, very powerful, and very royal people. <laughs> yeah, no, but often you don't think of in war, war's massively costly. Yeah. And it's, the, the Seven Year War is basically who was going to fall first, who was going to run out of money first. And France actually ran out of money. And, but England was struggling as well. I mean, they, were, they didn't have much money. And I think that's really started to a certain extent the rot. In their colonies is that they wanted to up the taxes to, to you know to get some money well, and to recoup money. There's this there's this conspiracy theory which was bandied about that the the English were levying un, unfair taxes on the Americans and it suited the Americans who wanted independence to say so. But George really had removed almost all their taxes by a certain point, and he kept the tea tax because he said otherwise they're going to think that we can't ever levy mm. a tax again. So even though we've removed all of these, we'll keep that one. But they were looking for an excuse. Boston was the scene of it with the Boston the tea, tea Party. party yeah. And George really didn't have anything to do with the ultimate loss of America. His own choice for prime minister, I think it was Lord North at the time, had lost pretty much all public support for a war. Uh, there'd been the defeats at Yorktown and, and various others. that it, it just wasn't anymore something that he could keep holding on to. And George was quite removed from the decision-making with mm. respect to America. He was a proper constitutional yeah. monarch. But once they'd lost the colonies, he said, oh, now I'm prepared to work with you. Well, yeah, he met John Adams famously. And um, John Adams ended up being the second president of the United States later on. But he was emissary to, to Britain straight after independence. So you can imagine that first meeting with mm. the king was very awkward. And George III is reputed to have said, I was the last to consent to the separation. But the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. So he was sensible. Yeah. And interestingly enough, France went into the war, Louis XVI, before he had his head chopped off. Um, <clears throat> he, just, he went in to assist the colony against England. But funny enough, not too long after that, because of the way George was, they became allies again, the American colony and England. So. Right. That turned against the French. Now, slavery was a big issue during his lifetime, and he was pro-slavery. Um, there are not a lot of people who will um, who'll be counted among the pro-slavers now because it's not a very popular position to take. But at the time, he thought it was a, a good idea. But he didn't make abolition a cabinet measure. As a result, he, he kind of let his ministers decide in their individual capacity what they wanted to do. So he played this game of chess with parliament the whole time, which is what a constitutional monarch mm. should do if they're any good. He interfered some of the time, and he was often reprimanded for it by the public or by the politicians. And sometimes he forced his way. 
because he could constitutionally do that. But the parliament wasn't quite divided. The, yeah. There was a lot of... Like, so this is really the era where the Whigs and the Tories came to prominence, The what eventually would become the left and the right of modern politics. And it's a fascinating story. I, I don't want to go too much into all the different prime ministers because they could be episodes on their own. But what happened is that George IV, who was at that stage Prince of Wales, would ally with the Whigs just to upset his father. Mm. And his father would take it as a personal insult if the Whigs won an election and they supported the Prince of Wales. It was almost like you had two battling households going on here the whole time. And really, George IV was a bit of a disappointment to his mm. father. You know, George III was working hard here to try and ensure that Britain was moving ahead scientifically, agriculturally, in terms of exploration, um, in terms of government, in terms of education, everything else. They were trying to make the country a real first world power for that time. And George IV was interested in drinking and partying mm. and dressing up and decorating his houses. And then unfortunately he had an episode, you know, where this malady which affected him a lot in his life, it happened in Parliament needed to make a decision on on what to do in case that George III would never come back. Yeah. And that's where they, they had to do something in terms of the law for the prince. And, uh, and luckily, they instituted the, the regency. The regency, correct. But this whole story of George going mad, and there's lots of new evidence. They found a, a lock of his hair a while ago, and they tested it, and they found some arsenic in it, which means that he may have – not that he was poisoned, but he may have been exposed to poisonous wallpapers or mm. whatever else. I mean, they say that's what killed Napoleon. But um, they initially blamed the disease porphyria, which is a rare blood disease. Which we get purple. Your, your yeah, urine, goes, your urine purple. goes purple. And porphyria, whatever it was that drove him mad, he, he certainly was, you know, slightly wacky. Mm. He used to say, what, 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 at the end of every mm. sentence. He would uh, talk to animals all the time. He would talk to trees and address them as if they were other kings. But that's not ab abnormal, is it? Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he'd play games with his equerries where he'd ride on their backs like they were horses. This is when he was totally <laughs> yeah, mad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, a, he, was a, he was a good guy. I mean, he just loved going up to ordinary people yeah. in a straw hat and saying, how do you do, what, what, what? <laughs> I am the king. Who are you? <laughs> and then they'd talk to him. I mean, maybe that's where, you know, the current royals get it from. Hello, what do you do? And, you know, that kind of thing. But this is what his... This is his social idea of being king is that he would go around and talk to everybody. Mm. I mean, in, in private, he was probably a, a lot more serious, but he did go crazy. And I mean, he, he had a tough time physically. You know, in those days, they didn't know how to deal with mental illness. So they would bleed you. Mm. They would uh, put leeches on you. And they did use arsenic in some form, oh, actually, absolutely. to try and see if you could help. And they'd beat him and they'd put him in a straitjacket. Mm. I mean, can you imagine beating the king? putting him in a straitjacket, and he'd be screaming because he didn't know what was going on. He was mm. deranged. And he would do inappropriate things, like he'd pull down his pants and pee in the middle of a mm. you know, concert recital or whatever. So it became a bit of a problem. <laughs> and, and he did dip in and out of this. I mean, in law, they call it a lucidum intervallum, where you come out and you're clear for a while, but then you go straight back into the madness. So it was a very sad thing to see. But he had been king for a very long time, yeah. and he'd been mostly a stable influence on things. And eventually, you know, they decided after his, I think it was his third major episode, that it wasn't likely that he was going to come back. Yeah. But all the while, he had set up the English monarchy as an example of what he wanted 
a king and a queen and a royal family to be. And that, that example was inherited by all of his heirs and probably continues more or less to this day, which is why things like the abdication was such a scandal, why Charles and Diana's marriage breakdown was mm. such a scandal, because the idea that George III put in play in the late 1700s remained a fruitful idea of what monarchy should be mm. in the modern world all the way up to the modern moment. And even the ratification of the prime minister. Yes. I mean, that started with him. Yeah, well, I, the, the, uh, the whole relationship between the government and the monarchy was sort of put in place by maybe his, his predecessor, George II, but mostly him. Mm. And it remains that way. Sadly, um, for the last seven or eight years of his life, he was blind, he was deaf, he had long hair, a long beard. But when he lost his sight, he would get people to read to him all the mm. time. And so he was still trying very hard. I think that what pushed him over the edge was when his daughter died. And, and his youngest daughter was Princess Amelia. And they and were close. They were he very loved close. his children. I mean, he was, he was fond of all of them. He, he grew to dislike the Prince of Wales, mm. but the rest of them he absolutely loved. And of course, Queen Victoria's father, who was his fourth son, Edward Duke of Kent, um, he died before George III, but he didn't even know what was going on by then. And when yeah. Amelia died a few years before that, it just, it, it really hurt him. Yeah. He wrote, he wrote letters to, Charlotte, he was already kind of locked away and, and didn't mm. see much of the family. I mean, he must have been quite a a sad character. He was wandering around on the ground floor apartments, which they'd set aside for him. Probably at, at padded, Windsor, it was probably, a, yeah, probably yeah. padded the walls. <laughs> Nobody went to visit him anymore. He was just a, a deranged old man. And there's a very sad picture of him that was the last portrait painted of him. Um, it's a miniature, actually. And it's just this very old man who's kind of staring into the distance because he can't see anymore, he can't hear anymore. So it's all kind of a sad story at the end because he had been the most educated, most interesting man in Britain who had his hands on all the gears for a long time. Mm. And then suddenly he was this invalid who was insane. Yeah, that is actually very sad. But an incredible life. Yes, I mean, if you look at what what he had to deal with, I mean, the French Revolution must have been scary to any monarch across the world. So, and the fact, the point that you raised earlier was that that England didn't go down that road. His testimony to first of all the respect that they had for him, and even that, even the Americans, they, you know, that was it was fifty percent of them wanted to stay under the yeah, monarchy. Well, they had a big statue up in New York to him, yeah, which I mean, they only was, pulled down in like the about the eighteen hundreds or so. Yeah, so I mean, the fact is, there was he still had he had good support, and yeah. Yeah, and like I said, he had very strong work ethic. Yeah, good guy. Yeah, I, I think he was he was a for his time he was a very advanced monarch and thought mm. thought forward rather than backward. Yeah, and I think that his progeny or that went forward. I mean, Queen Victoria was special beside her oh, depressive moments, but well, she totally took over his mantle, mm. and I think she implemented a lot of the things that he would have yeah. probably done if he'd lived at her time. 100%. So, uh, overall, a good guy. I mean, he was proper crazy a lot of the time, mm. which is also, I think, quite charming because there's an English eccentricity that borders on madness, which we still associate with the royal family. Mm. And it's all because of him. In the middle of a, of a, of a Handel concert when they were playing the Hallelujah chorus one time, he got up and started dancing with Queen Charlotte. He just decided this was too good to sit yeah. down. I mean, you didn't do that. If you were a <laughs> king, you sat there and everybody clapped when you clapped. He loved it. Anyway, George III, God save the king. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> what, what, what? What, what, what? 
Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1819, he's recorded by eyewitnesses to have spoken nonsense for 58 hours in a row. Now, that is two whole days and two whole nights and some. Nonsense. Nonstop. 